Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. Welcome to The Indispensables. Uh, today, I have Rick Kelly. He's the Chief Strategy Officer for Fuel Cycle, which is a market research platform. They're all about acquiring, retaining, and expanding customer relationships, helping you um, acquire, retain, and expand customer relationships. And um, uh, so, Rick Kelly, welcome to The Indispensables. Hey, thank you so much for having me on, Bruce. I'm so glad to have you on. Uh, so, uh, tell us your story. How does somebody get to be Rick Kelly? You know, there's no like linear progression. It's just a little chaotic, but I'll, I'll give you the quick overview is I've been at Fuel Cycle for about nine years now. Uh, it started as a very small company. Fortunately, it's uh, been growing quite nicely over the past few years. But uh, I started in market research. I got into market research because of the uh, recession back in like 2008, 2009. I was planning to go pursue further academia. Uh, didn't, didn't make that happen. And I uh, ended up falling into a market research job about uh, two weeks before graduation. Um, you know, spent time uh, bopping around you know, working in technology. I taught university for a while and uh, eventually ended up moving to, uh, to India uh, to work uh, in a tech company. And then on the way back from India, uh, I had to move kind of move back in a rush. I emailed a friend and said, what are you up to? And turns out that friend was at the company that is now Fuel Cycle. And so it was really happenstance. I started off in customer success, uh, did product development for a few years, and just kind of recently moved into the strategy role. So, you know, Rick, what I love about what you're saying is, you know, and more and more people. So, you know, on this show, I have, uh, uh, you know, four star generals, I have CEOs, I have people who are like you, uh, phenomenally successful and leading important roles in important organizations. And like clockwork, maybe not the four star generals, but everyone else is like, you know, my, 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 my career just unfolded. Um, that that it's not a linear path. Life is not linear, yeah. right? Uh, and, and and the most successful people, they're the ones who, like you, uh, somehow uh, they follow opportunity, right? I mean, because you were teaching political science, right? Oh yeah, political science. You know, did two degrees in that. But uh, you know, I think it's really life is really about velocity rather than like direction, right? So it's taking opportunities as they come. And uh, just trying to move and understand, you know, where opportunities lie. Well, so to, what did you learn? What, what are the lessons from political science that you use in market research? Oh, that's a really fantastic question. Uh, so I have a statistics background. So obviously a lot of stats, but it's really about uh, human behavior. How do we, how do people operate? And of course, uh, one of the things I really enjoy in the strategy role is kind of a game theory background. So studying like international conflict, uh, you know, why powers act the way that they do, those types of things, it really plays out well uh, in markets and understanding, you know, how are you going to act and how do you know, competitors interact with you? How do you acquire and retain, you know, customers, those types of things. Game theory, which, yeah, I mean, uh, so are you like a Kenneth Arrow guy? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I love uh, all things. I'm a big Axelrod person as well. You know, reciprocity, tit for tat, uh, you know iterative games. It's a, it's a really fun process and a good way of kind of structuring the way the world works. 
So do you play chess? Uh, I do play chess. Uh, my yeah, it's, 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 it's like a big chess game, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm not the best chess player, but uh, I enjoy it a lot with my 10-year-old. <laughs> well, if you're gonna play chess with a ten-year-old, then uh, makes you feel like a uh, like pretty pretty darn good at chess, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's a consistent ego boost. Actually, someday when he listens to this podcast, I will say that he is very very good and uh, is can, can challenge me well. Um, so tell us, uh, uh, so so you you were teaching political science. Just out of curiosity, what were you teaching? Game theory and stuff like that, or 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 um, uh, conflict. Uh, uh, strategy and what were you teaching? Yeah, uh, really two topics. One was international relations and the other was statistics. So research methods, things like that. And were you in Rexburg? I was in Rexburg, Idaho. That's right. So get this, man. Uh, my um, mother-in-law grew up in Chester, Idaho, uh, right along the road on the way from uh, Rexburg to uh, St. Anthony. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah, so I mean, I know Rexburg, and I've watched it grow up. We've been going there. We go there every July uh, for um, uh, for a family reunion. And um, uh, man, BYU in Rexburg is an incredible institution. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting um, the way that they that the school itself has adopted to uh, is really kind of focused on providing maximum value education. So they focus on teaching, helping people kind of move through very quickly at a low cost. And I think it's a great model model for education. But yeah, uh, everyone's so polite. Yeah. And uh, South, you know, southeastern Idaho is just the most beautiful scenery you've ever seen in your life. You know, and my mother-in-law still has a house there. So it's uh, it's cool, man. We, we, we go there all the time. And uh, um, and, uh, I, you know, I mean, that's uh, so we're family practically. We're practically family, it turns out. There we go. Uh, cousins. I, I, I love it. Um, and so I, I, I'm interested in what, what first opinion. Uh, what did you do at, at first opinion? Well, you know what? First opinion was founded by a college roommate of mine. And uh, it was a tech startup. I was really desperate just to work in technology. It turns out academia was a little too uh, monotonous for me. And so I really wanted to do something really dynamic and exciting. And technology felt like the right spot to be. And so I ended up just kind of working hard to, you know, apply to a bajillion different jobs, those types of things. My friend ended up starting this, this company and uh, he asked me if I would move myself and my family to India to work with uh, doctors and hospital systems in India. And it was really a fortunate experience. I, you know, I was excited to move, uh, had a good time for a few months there. But my son was diagnosed with a really rare bleeding disorder while we were in India. And we ended up having to move back in a, in a big hurry. The amazing thing is, is that while in India, uh, we were able to get some of the best medical care possible. Uh, two doctors, one had moved back from the Toronto Children's Hospital, one had moved back from the Mayo Clinic, and they uh, diagnosed my son with this incredibly rare condition that they had had the opportunity to see that uh, you know most doctors in the U.S. would have never seen or been able to diagnose before. So it was all kinds of blessings in disguise there. Yeah, it was uh, very fortunate. It all worked out really well for us. And but you did have the experience of going to India and doing work with medical technology there, and it's it's first opinion. So I'm wondering is that is, is that a reference to first medical opinion or what is the reference there? Yeah, so it's a, it's a it was a startup, so I don't think it's a, in existence anymore. But the idea was that you know kind of mer- first opinion for a doctor or for in a medical context, you need kind of a you know first kind of gut check 
So the, the target market were new parents who wanted to understand, you know, hey, my baby has X, you know, has a rash. Do I need to go see a doctor or do I just take care of it? Right. And so uh, it was that type of thing. And it uh, it's a really good idea. And I hope that the idea survives in the future. But it's you know, very much like a text to doctor type solution. And, and I guess it's first opinion as opposed to second opinion. Mm-hmm. Is that the idea? Exactly. Yeah, I I, I, I I like the idea. Um and um and okay, and then you go on to survey sampling international. Uh sounds like the through line here is technology and data. Um, right. so, so what is survey sampling international? Well, so survey sampling international uh is a company that provides market research respondents for surveys. They're also like a f- full service data collection provider. It's now rolled up into a company that's called uh, Dynata, where if you're familiar with the market research industry, Dynata is one of the kind of the larger conglomerates now. But it really is about providing survey respondents and data you know, processing services to, um, you know, to uh, corporations and to market research firms. And so in these early experiences, you're traveling around the world. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're becoming an expert in conflict uh, strategy and game theory. Uh, you're teaching political science. You're, you're sort of uh, getting your feet wet in technology, in global uh, uh, business. Uh, you're learning all kinds of different approaches to data uh, acquisition and data utilization and data analysis. You're becoming uh, uh, you are getting all of this experience, um, in, in the world of that, that leads you to become a leader in market research. And now for nine years, you've been applying that. And so I'm guessing that that first part was like, uh, your, cause you actually have an MBA, right? That's right. Um, but this sounds like you also, this is, this is like your doctorate in business administration. Just nobody issued a degree. And there you go. I, I think that's a fair assessment. And then, uh, and then you you find yourself um, uh, running strategy at Fuel Cycle, and 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 from what I gather, it's a rapidly growing uh, business for the nine years you've been there. So whatever you're doing, it must be working. You know, there's a, a lot of trial by experience. You know, there's lots of challenges and everything too, but it's also really exciting. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to to work with a great team and a you know great group of people. And I think the one thing that I've learned personally is to talk to customers all the time. Uh, ultimately, uh, you know, business is about kind of making and building something that people want to buy. And so understanding customer problems and kind of the jobs to be done within a customer framework is, is really, really important. And so talking to customers, learning from them is I really attribute that to our success. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Clients always say to me, cause I'm a consultant, right. You know, and, uh, uh, I always say it beats working, but they, you know, and I always tell my clients, you know, before, um, w- before I get working, cause I tell them, look, the bill is going to be, you know, exorbitant, just FYI. Like it's, it's not cheap. It's not even expensive. It's exorbitant. And what I'm going to do is borrow your watch and then tell you what time it is. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but somehow, um, you know, it, it, maybe it's the independent third party. Maybe it's all of your expertise and experience. And, uh, you know, at some point you bring a wisdom to the table, right? Yeah. 
And I think, you know, price is such an interesting topic. I love kind of pricing dynamics and everything, but it really is about value, right? So value provided and because you can have a high bill, but if you're providing value, then you're going to see repeat business and, um, you know, kind of understanding customer businesses, providing value. It's a good way to, to generate a living. Yeah. And I want to understand your team and how you do what you do. Uh, but but it sounds like what you manage to deliver at Fuel Cycle is helping organizations uh, do what you call customer led decision making. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly can, right. Can you explain that? Yeah. What is that? So ultimately, every business is going to be better off if they make more customer led decisions, meaning that they're going to have higher efficiency, uh, better return on investment. You know, those types of things when they follow customer needs and in an era where it's inc- that's incredibly dynamic, whether it's the economy, whether it's you know new technologies or it's uh, new products, new supply chain systems or COVID or anything like that, is that ultimately there's kind of very significant shifts in a very short time period in customer preferences. And so be able to stay abreast of those changes and understand customer needs as they're evolving in real time is an imperative. There's a, um, there's a 2016 study uh, put out by the Boston Consulting Group that ranks customer-led decision-making as one of the top two priorities for global executives. But at the same time, only 11% of those global executives are actually satisfied or extremely satisfied with their customer-led decision-making process. So you have this huge need where there's a big need to make more customer-led decisions, but ultimately the process and everything is not delivering the value that it ought to for businesses to be successful. And so we're trying to help uh, help shift that by helping brands kind of understand what customers want, how to package price and deliver that to the market in a very streamlined, efficient manner. Yeah. So what do you guys do that's different? Like, how do you do that? And, yeah. I, and I take it the process is the fuel cycle. Yeah, exactly. So we have a platform. It's a software platform that uh, connects all your insight solutions into one kind of unified ecosystem. So essentially there's a lot of point, you know, point solutions within enterprise, whether it's surveys or focus group data or CRM behavioral data and fuel cycle consolidates those all into a single platform that allows you to have that kind of constant connection with your key audiences. So if you want to go out and talk to customers, you can do that in the moment, you know, you can run a, uh, you know, really advanced pricing study this afternoon after setting it up this morning. And then, you know, say, uh, say a need for a set of focus groups or user interviews comes up. Well, you can be running those on the same day. And so it's really about expanding the volume and efficiency with which businesses can operate and incorporate those customer voices into their actual decision making. So is it so so it, how much is is it about data acquisition? How much is it about data analysis? How much of it is about data reporting uh, and and um, uh, pattern uh, illustration and how much of it is about predicting the future because you talk about future proofing and I'm guessing that means the the level of business intelligence you all are doing it's not just uh, acquiring data or mining data it's not just mapping data but it's learning from data and saying and so here's where we think this is going here's what we think you should do next yeah that's exactly right. So ultimately, like the the analysis is dependent upon data collection. So data collection is a big part of it. But then incorporating analyses is really, really important too. a good example of how how we're supporting those types of things is 
and we'll take your data in from like a CRM. So say behavioral data around like- For, for the uninitiated, uh, CRM is a, a customer relationship management package, right? Yeah, thank you Let's for- Salesforce. Exactly, so thank you for clarifying because it can have a lot of behavioral data, say like your subscription tiers or most recent, you know, recent product purchase, something along those lines. You tie that to stated preference data, which is oftentimes like survey data. Now, so you tie that with the survey data and then we're going to be able to deliver something like this uh, a machine learning segmentation solution that helps you identify which audiences are most open to a new product concept or a new advertising concept, but also those who are rejecting it. And in addition to that, we will be able to give you actionable drivers and tell you, here's how you should alter this product or alter this message in order to acquire more customers without sacrificing other customers that are already open to purchasing. And so it's uh, trying to make that insight like really, really actionable by incorporating all data available, but also using new analysis solutions to drive uh, additional value for brands. Yeah. And so one of the things I find interesting about uh, business intelligence, you know, uh, we, 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 I mean, I've been doing management consulting for 30 years, right? So, so I remember when we started realizing, oh, you know, and we first started seeing this in, 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 in credit card companies and stuff where you could, oh, well, hmm, wait, we're gathering that if, if we, if we keep track of this data, right, then we can start reporting this data and we can look. So then you're looking in the rearview mirror. Hmm. And then people started realizing, maybe we can learn from this data and project out into the future, right? And then, uh, and then, of course, there's so much data available now. The biggest problem is not get right. We've got data. It's knowing what the heck to do with it. Yep, exactly. It's, it's, uh, there's a lot of data, but not a lot of it's actionable. It's either too late or not meaningful, right? And so how do you translate insights into action? I think that's really the fundamental question, right? And is that, and so the fuel cycle, is it like we, like, is that the idea that then uh, to turn the insights into decisions? Exactly. So ultimately uh, insights are only valuable if, uh, if they're acted on, right? So most, most, the thing about like historical market research processes and things like that is you're creating a PowerPoint that goes into some corporate SharePoint to die, right? So it gets looked at by a few people, but then it's all retrospective. Um, I'm reminded of the uh, one of my favorite quotes is uh, from from Peter Drucker, which is uh, strategy is a commodity, execution is an art. And so ultimately, collecting data, you know, collecting insights, that's a, it's, it's a commodity. There's lots of data, there's lots of information generated from a business. Ultimately, being able to act on it, being able to execute based on those insights, that's where art comes in. And ultimately, creating action is where value comes from from a business. And back to game theory and political science and uh, uh, and and uh, uh, conflict strategy, um, it, it's it's by doing, say, an after action review, looking at what what uh, decisions were made, what actions were taken, what options were foreclosed, what options were opened up, um, and then doing a decision action tree going forward, like a chess game. If I do A, then they might do B. If they do B, I might do C. That opens up D, E, and F, and each of those create, and, and gosh, you, you might need a software platform with algorithms to figure all that stuff out if it gets to be too much, right? Exactly. If only one like fuel cycle existed. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, 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 um, so I'm, I, I think this is great stuff and you're a growing organization. Um, uh, and, and where are you based? So we have offices in Los Angeles and, and in New York. I'm personally okay. in LA. And, 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 uh, uh, and how, how big of an organization is this? So about 130 people today. Uh, no. When I started, it was probably 13 people or so. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so it's been fun. We've had uh, we've had no outside funding or anything like that. So it's all been kind of uh, growth. Um, so it's privately and, held. Oh yeah, and it's a lot of fun to do it that way. You know, it's kind of like playing a game on hard mode, but uh, it's also a lot of fun because you know, again, we really have to be highly attuned to customer needs. So do you have you don't have outside investors? You just have internal owners. Yeah, that's right. So you must have private equity folks preying upon you. Well, that's a great question. There's lots of, uh, I think sending emails is, is cheap and easy. So we, uh, you know, people always do try and talk, but uh, we haven't done anything yet. No, but I mean, they must be like circling around you trying to figure out your net present value and all that stuff. Oh, I'm, I'm sure that's true. Um, and And so who are the folks who work for you? Are they I mean, is it is it um, uh, consultants? That's who most of the folks are, or are they software developers, or are they business intelligence analysts? Yeah. So, so first of all, we have the greatest team. I feel so fortunate to work with the people that we work with. Uh, one of our core values here is a team before self, and really, we find that permeates our organization. So, there's a very large product development and software engineering team. And it's supplemented by, you know, fantastic go-to-market teams, but also a handful of uh, consultants that sit here internally and help clients, you know, derive m- maximum value from our software. And so what does your team look like? What is uh, your chief strategy officer? Obviously, you have a seat at the C-level table. So there must be like an executive leadership team that you're a part of. Yeah, I'm very fortunate, uh, again, to work with a great set of colleagues. Uh, today, I have the product team, so kind of the product development team working with me, as well as our partnerships team. And then, uh, you know, but in my role, I get to work really cross-functionally across the organization and uh, get input and output from uh, every team, whether it's our go-to-market teams or it's our, you know, software development team or whatever that might be. Uh, strategy is really about the art of, you know, finding ways to grow. And so is your boss the CEO? That's right. And then who are your direct reports? Like how many people are on your immediate team? So one of the things I know about myself is I try and slim down as many direct reports as possible. Um, but uh, so I have our VP of product and our director of partnerships that are uh, my direct reports. So you're leading leaders who lead leaders who lead leaders. Yeah, that's the idea. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's uh, and, and so but what's it like? So is uh, the CEO, what kind of relationship is that? I mean, there's CEOs and there's CEOs or CEOs who... Who, uh, who who believe in strategy and then like it's the CEO and the CFO and the COO and the strategy person, right? Is that kind of what your deal is or? Yeah, that's that's more or less it. And uh, I have a really, really fantastic mentor and CEO. Uh, his name is Aron Gilad. We worked together for, I think, going on seven years now. And, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate to have been able to learn. He's a, he's a person that has a Zen-like quality and about him where, you know, very steady, uh, very, uh, you know, very patient, um, also inspires people uh, to perform at their best. And so in my functions where I get to focus on, you know, kind of business development, but also corporate development and everything as well, it's a very much a, a kind of constant daily dialogue 
And uh, I'm very fortunate to be able to work with them. Constant daily dialogue. That sounds like something I might write in a book. Um, so, so, uh, so look, I always say the first person you got to manage every day is yourself. What's your strategy for managing? What, 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 what's, what's Rick's strategy for, for managing Rick? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, I would say for myself is I really, I'm fortunate that work is my hobby as well. You know, so I really enjoy what I do. I also enjoy my kids and everything too. Um, so I just, yeah, I just how is your, how is your child? The one who had an illness? Oh yeah. He, so he, it's a long-term thing. Fortunately he does really well and, uh, he probably has the best medical care for his condition in the world, to be honest. And, uh, so we're very grateful, uh, that that's worked out for him. Um, you know, so I, I, again, I'm fortunate that, uh, my work is my hobby. I like to, uh, like to have fun. I enjoy what I do. I tend to wake up early. Uh, if I sit on the couch after 9 PM, I fall asleep. But, uh, you know, it's kind of keeping a steady to-do list, trying to prioritize and make myself available. You know, I think uh, I think maintaining uh, mental health uh, and kind of positive mental state is really, really important, especially in a long-term role like this. So I try and exercise, try and eat well, try and, uh, you know, try and have fun. Uh, Saturdays are a good day for me where I feel like that's just, that's kind of a family day where I try and chill and relax as much as possible with, uh, with, uh, with kids and everything too. Uh, do you ever get back to Rexburg? Uh, I have not been back to Rexburg in probably a decade. Golly. Um, all right. Well, uh, I'll say hi to Rexburg for you in July. Um, so the first person you got to manage every day is yourself and, oh, just, uh, just, uh, point of, uh, personal curiosity. What's your fitness thing? What do you, what's your fitness routine? Oh, uh, just, I, <laughs> I mean, so I'm not going to say that I do anything wonderfully, but I really enjoy, uh, enjoy weightlifting. So like powerlifting and then, uh, mix that in with, uh, you know, kind of some low intensity aerobic exercise. That's, that's, that's good training. Do you have a dog? I have no dog. <laughs> no dog, but you have kids. How many kids? <laughs> I have two kids. Uh, so you run around chasing after them, right? Oh yeah. They're very, very active. Um, and okay. So the second person you got to manage every day is your boss. I usually say, and you said you have a Zen like a CEO who's been there also a mentor, been there for seven years or so. What's your strategy for, for staying in that constant dialogue? How do you, what, how do you do that? You know, so I think there's a uh, steady availability. Um, and also just kind of a, a constant cadence of communication. So if we're in the office together, obviously it's easy for us to, you know, kind of swing by each other's desks or and, and chat with each other. Um, but also it's, you know, phone calls, texts, things like that. Just being able to say, hey, I have this idea. Can we chat for five minutes really quickly? Um, and so really, you know, I don't think that everybody has uh, the ability to have that, that type of dialogue and kind of collaboration with, uh, with the CEO. But uh, fortunately, I do. And the cadence, constant, I like that constant cadence of communication. I like that. That's that, good alliteration, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And it's a nice concept. And, and, and my observation is that everybody kind of gets in, that one relationship is different from another, right? That, that one cadence, you get into a, a, you build a unique dialogue with each, with each person. It's different with one CEO as opposed to another or uh, yeah. one colleague as opposed to another, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, each relationship, whether it's a CFO, a CEO, it's a direct report, it's all different, right? And they all have to be nurtured differently. Um, and so understanding, you know, different people's communication styles, preferences for collaboration, 
uh, you know, really it's about adapting to each other while still kind of maintaining your own approach, but uh, adapting to kind of, you know, uh, maximize value for the business. And you've got two key lieutenants, right? Mm -hmm. So what's your, like, what kind of leader are you? How, what's your strategy for, um, for leading uh, your two key lieutenants and helping them help you help them? I would say that, uh, that first of all, there's there's a strategy and there's kind of an overall approach, but then also there's different times necessitate different uh, styles of leadership. So if there's a crisis or there's something urgent, then you know stepping in and being heavy-handed uh, maybe required. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes it's required, and uh, I think it's best not to pretend like it's not sometimes required. But in general, I like to set context and I like to provide communication, set expectations early up front. And then, uh, and then have people execute autonomously. So I don't want to be the one that's building out a plan. Um, in fact, if I'm building out a plan, then usually there's something wrong. But I'd like to set context, provide as much information as possible, uh, describe what success looks like and the outcome expected from success, and then uh, have our team members go ahead and execute on that. Yeah. So, uh, so of course, there's firefighting, then it's all hands on deck. Um, but, uh, 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 providing, um, input, uh, in, and, and context, as you say, and information and, um, uh, desired, uh, outcomes, uh, and, and working with folks to develop a plan. That's really the art of fire prevention, right? Yeah, exactly. So I'm a, there's a phrase that, uh, I don't know, I don't know where I heard this. Maybe I, uh, maybe I generated it, but is you choose your own stress, right? And so you choose your own stress, whether you put the stress up front or you backload it, like you're gonna have some inflection point. And so if you, the best way to prevent kind of the reactive stress is to put in the effort up front. So put an effort up front to prevent, uh, you know, kind of reactive stress in the long run. Yeah, I mean, it's like uh, General Eisenhower's uh, time management matrix uh, that Stephen Covey popularized uh, quadrant two, right? Uh, things that are very important, but not urgent exercise up yep. front is better stress than a heart attack. Yeah, right? ex ex exactly. Uh, fire prevention up front is better stress than a fire, right? Yep. A good plan is better stress than scrambling, uh, right? Investing in your relationships is, is better stress than a divorce. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, I just finished this book. It, it just came out. Um, it's this Oxford professor that wrote, uh, I think the title is How Big Things Get Done. And it's about like kind of big projects and how they get executed. Turns out, um, turns out like the number one thing is the, the volume of preparation and planning that goes into executing a big project is the number one determinant of whether that project will be successful or not. So whether you're building a Sydney Opera, Opera House or the Guggenheim you know, Museum or something like that, it really is a function, you know, how well it goes is a function of preparation and planning. Yeah, I mean, look, that's true of everything. I always say uh, anyone who makes something look easy, mark my words. It's because <laughs> they were doing the hard work in advance behind the scenes. Exactly, exactly. You know, a lot of effort makes things look effortless. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's like if, if you do a whole bunch of push-ups every day, then doing 50 push-ups looks easy. Exactly. But it's it, it doesn't look easy unless you've done thousands of push-ups. <laughs> That's exactly right. I agree with that. Um uh so so okay, so uh and uh 
So what's your day look like? How do you, um, how do you succeed every day? I mean, this is about, look, I mean, a lot of people who listen to this podcast, I, I think what they're thinking is, how do I get to be like this guy? You know, not everybody is the chief strategy officer of an organization that has grown uh, tenfold. Uh, in 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 a in a, a fourteen year period, right? Uh, not everybody, you know. People look and and you say, oh well, you know, I, if I was teaching, then I went to India, did a little international business, and then I, you know, got a master's degree in business administration. Oh, a little of this, a little of that. Well, I mean, to most people, they're like, well, I could never be like Rick Kelly. <laughs> How does somebody get to be like you? Well, I'm not sure that I'm the person that they want to be like. But, uh, you know, something I think that uh, you I actually I read this in one of your blog posts is around like saying no. And uh, so for me, I've uh, I've said yes to lots of opportunities. And now I have to kind of really curate the amount of things I say yes to. And so saying no and setting priorities for what I want is really key. And ultimately, you know, there's there's trade offs and everything. So being an executive in a growing company means that, you know, you're often attached to your phone. You know, I was on vacation last week and I took phone calls, not because I wanted to or was desperate to. It's because, you know, it was kind of necessary to kind of unlock a few things and things like that. And so ultimately, uh, I think a lot of satisfaction in life comes from, you know, choosing and knowing what you want and living in accordance with those values. So for me, um, you know, I, I really feel like I've got kind of one life to live. And so I'd like to explore that, you know, both professionally and personally. What does that look like? And uh, that means that I want to work hard. I want to learn really quickly. And uh, they'll never see the volume of times that I've completely screwed something up because I screw things up all the time. But I try and you know, kind of correct and fix those on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, there's some great research. Um, uh, Warren Bennis uh, was, was f- uh, famous for a lot of things. But uh, one of the great uh, uh, lessons I learned from Warren Bennis was uh, that the most effective leaders, it's not that they don't make mistakes. It's that they, they make the same number of mistakes. It's just they recognize them and correct them. Yeah. There's a there's a great framework. It's a Boyd's, Boyd's Law of Iteration. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but this is uh, comes out of the Vietnam War with Colonel uh, John Boyd, who was an Air Force pilot at the time. And so ultimately, he was the one who kind of created the whole OODA loop framework. Ultimately, uh, the velocity of decision-making uh, produces better outcomes over time rather than making the right decision the first time. So I'd rather take enough information, make a decision, and then be able to correct uh, than to wait too long to make a decision. Yeah, it's the fail fast model. Exactly. Yeah, and it's and it's, um, uh, but 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 you gotta uh, fail with as as little uh, damage as possible and as and as rapid correction as possible. And it's as you say, iterative. And it turns out real innovation is almost always iterative. Oh, yeah. So like low cost failure is super important. By the way, that's like the like the importance of market research is you have like very low fidelity, you know, prototypes, something that's very early before it goes into production. Do people want to buy this or not? Right. So low cost iteration or low cost failure is pretty critical. Yeah. Low cost failure is the key to sustainable iteration. Right. Yep. Yep, Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, 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 yeah, that's that's uh, that's good stuff. Um, so, so, um, uh, so you got to know, I always say when to say no. And, uh, because as, as you say, your yeses 
uh, are time consuming and you got to be careful how you allocate your time. Yes is a commitment, right? That's right. That's right. Um, uh, so, okay. Do you have, uh, so you're getting on an elevator with, uh, some young person who's looking over and going, wow, that's Rick Kelly. Uh, and, and they've only got an elevator ride. Uh, do you have a, what, what's your closing word of advice? <laughs> Again, I'm not sure this person wants to meet me, but I would just say, uh, know yourself, know yourself and, you know, live in accordance with that. So if you want to be, if you want to be a CEO, then there's a price to be paid for being a CEO. If you want to have a lot of simplicity and bliss in your life, then probably leading a company isn't the right thing for you. But, uh, you know, there's all trade-offs. Um, there's no perfect decision. And ultimately, knowing what you personally want is the most important thing you can do. To thine own self be true. Love it. R Rick Kelly, Chief Strategy Officer for Fuel Cycle. Uh, thank you for being a guest on the Indispensables. Uh, we've I, I've learned a lot. I hope uh, our guests are learning a lot. I I, I I I can only imagine they are. So thank you so much. Well, thanks again for having me on, Bruce. This has been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.